First Samuel chapter 4. We're going to read the first 11 verses. And again, uh, as you're turning there, just by way of reminder, uh, for those joining us for the second service, those online, uh, there will be no service this Wednesday. Uh, we have district conference this Wednesday, so uh, there will be no service here. Amen. But do be in prayer for those those meetings, that the Lord would have his way, that he would direct this district according to his perfect will. Amen. First Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched before Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were, with the, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are those gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the, the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel thirty thousand footmen, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. We're going to preach for the remainder of our time here this morning on this topic. Is your shout the right shout? Is your shout the right shout? If we could pray one more time and ask God to bless the remainder of our service here this morning, that he would speak to each and every one of us according to his will and according to our desperate need. Amen. Lord Jesus, we continue to worship and praise you throughout the, the remainder of this service. I pray, O oh God, that you would have your perfect will and way here today. This is your service. We are your people. You are in charge. Hallelujah, Jesus. Continue to have your perfect will with us. As the word goes forth, let it minister in each heart according to your will. Let it not go forth void, but let it return and accomplish that which you please and prosper in the thing whereto you sent it. I pray, Lord, that your name would be exalted through the preaching of the word, that your name would be lifted up through our, our obedience to the word of God this morning. And above all else, Lord, that your name would be glorified in our midst today. These things we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. That's a little better. 
So the ark of God was taken. We're going to do some, uh, give some background information. Hopefully not too long. And then we'll get into the, the message proper. Physical characteristics of the ark. I promise you, uh, as unrelated as some of this seems, it's all related. We'll tie it together at the end. Lord willing. Called in Hebrew, Aaron Barith, to the Israelites, it was symbolically Yahweh's throne, representing his very presence on earth. It was a golden chest that contained the covenant tablets, tables of stone, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. It was constructed, according to Exodus 25, 35, and 37, of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. There were also rings connected to the chest where carrying poles could be inserted and picked up on either side and carried wherever it needed to go. The cover was called the mercy seat. This was a piece of solid gold with two cherubims affixed on top. The ark was instructed to be two and a half cubits or four and a half feet long, one and a half cubits or two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a half quarters feet wide, I'm sorry, tall. The estimated weight of the ark of the covenant is 288 pounds, give or take, but who's counting? Other names for the ark of the covenant include the ark, the ark of the testimony, the ark of God, the ark of might, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Now, the spiritual ramifications of the Ark is that it represented the presence of God to the Israelites. Uh, in Numbers 10, uh, verses 33 through 35, we read that the Ark of the Covenant went before the scouts to search out a resting place for them. Starting with verse 35, it says, And it came to pass when the Ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. And let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. So it represented the movement and the, the, the presence of God. Wherever the ark went, that's where the Lord was going. When the ark came back, the, the presence of God was coming back into the camp. The ark was the visible sign that the invisible God was dwelling in Israel's midst. And it carried with it God's holiness and God's presence and God's righteousness as well. And that often had devastating and often deadly consequences. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, 19, we read that the people of Beth Shemesh were severely punished after they had treated the ark without proper reverence. 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 through 9, a man named Uzzah was killed by the Lord when he touched it with his hand to keep it from tumbling to the ground from off the cart. The ark was dangerous to touch if you weren't allowed to touch it because it was the very symbol of God's presence. We talked last uh, in our last service about the high priest being able to enter into the, the Holy of Holies one time a year. If that priest wasn't ceremonially clean and all of his flesh covered, that's why they had pomegranates and bells around his, his robe. When those pomegranates and bells stopped ringing... He also had a, a rope tied to his foot. They weren't going in to get him. We can't let him just stay in there. So they pulled out the dead body. Explaining to people, yes, God is loving. 
Yes, God is merciful and he is gracious. He is all of these things and I am so thankful for that. We all ought to be very thankful for that. But he is also holy and he is also righteous and he is a God of justice. And these two characteristics of God are not at odds with each other. It comes together. I can't, I can't, I can quote the verse, but I can't quote the reference. But he is faithful and just to forgive us all sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is it just to forgive sins? How is that justice? If someone comes into my home and murders my wife and the judge just lets them go scot-free, did I get justice? No. I'm going to be upset about that. That's not justice. That's, that's, that's a travesty. But God did that for you, and he did that for me. But see, the difference is, whereas the judge is just going to ring his gavel and move on to the next case, this judge suffered on a cross and died so that he could say, you're forgiven. His justice was satisfied because the full wrath of God was poured out upon him against sin, my sin, your sin. It was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. His wrath was satisfied. His justice was satisfied. And so now today he can tell anybody that comes to him, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And that is justice. That is justice because it has already been paid. Amen. But that holiness is still there. That aspect of God is still there. And even though we're sons and daughters of God, even though that's true, and we've got to believe that, and we've got to walk and live like that's true, but when we approach Dad, when we approach Abba Father, we've got to approach him reverently because he is also the King of Kings, and he is the Lord of Lords. In ancient times, if my dad was the king, yeah, he's dad. But when I approach him in the throne room, I approach him like every other subject. Because I'm not the king. He's the king. And I approach him reverently. And when we approach the throne of God, yes, we need to approach him boldly. In that, those promises that he has given us, we need to expect them to, to we need to expect him to fulfill those promises in our lives. He gave them to us. He swore by an oath that he would fulfill those promises, a covenant promise. But approaching his presence is done with respect and with reverence. He's not the man upstairs. He's not JC. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's Jehovah. We need to understand both aspects. He's the same God of holiness as he was in the days of Moses, in the days of 2 Samuel. He's also the same God of mercy then as he is now. Looking at the book of Judges leading into 1 Samuel, the ark clearly played a benevolent role in the Israelites' desert journey when the ark of the covenant was present, so was blessing and victory. That makes sense. That's the presence of God. 
When God was with them, they experienced victory. When the ark was not present, the Israelites suffered defeat at the hands of their enemies. In Joshua chapter 3, 13 through 17, we see that the ark played an important symbolic role in crossing the river Jordan. It commanded Joshua to tell the priests, take the ark and, and stand in the middle. Joshua 6, 6 through 11, also had an important role in the conquest of Jericho. The ark was present there. Joshua 8:33, the ark played a significant role in the daily lives of the Israelites. But in all of, all through this, there was no hint of superstitious or magical use of the ark. No one worshipped the ark. The ark was only there because it represented something far more significant. It represented God. It represented his presence amongst us. God dwelling with us. The ark in and of itself was just a piece of wood and gold. It was what it represented that mattered. It contained no value to bless or curse in and of itself. So in the period of the Judges, we don't read a whole lot about the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Judges. In chapter 20, verse 27, uh, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant. So up till here, we see the same reverence given to the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Judges. It was God they were seeking when it's mentioned, not the Ark of God itself. Okay. Let's look at the priesthood and their various offices. There were three uh, sons of Levi. The Levites were the priests, Gershon, Koath, and Merari. The Gershonites had the charge of the tabernacle, the tent, the tent covering, the hanging for the door of the tabernacle, the hanging of the court, the curtain for the door of the court, and the cords of it. Everything in the tabernacle was split up between these three tribes. The Kohathites had the charge of the ark, the table, the candlestick, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary. The Merorites had charge of the boards of the tabernacle, the bars of the pillars, the pillars and sockets of the tabernacle, the pillars, sockets, pins, and cords of the court. Okay. Again, that will come into play later. Now, let's look at this Uzzah guy. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-7. through 7. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, not Ohio, the sons of Abinadab drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Now we're going to go into why that happened specifically, but first things first. God, I'm going to tip that over if I go there. God is a God of order. He has a set order to, to things. When he orchestrated, when he created the, all of reality, he set into effect natural laws. There is no chaos out there. Everything is ordered. Days, months, years, seasons. They all, they all have structure. They all have order. 
all the way, if you, if you go all the way down in size to molecules and atoms, they have structure and they have order and they are governed by natural laws that they cannot break. If you go all the way macro to galaxies and superclusters, they are governed by natural laws that they cannot break and they have structure. Galaxies have a very specific structure to them. Everything in between has structure and they are ordered and they are governed by natural laws. God is a God of order. He has a way to do things. When you step outside of that order, there are consequences. There are natural consequences. And we ought not be surprised when they come. It's like I tell my girls, my boys, these are the rules of the house. If you abide by them, you will live. <laughs> and if you don't, there are consequences coming. And then they don't, and the consequences come, and they're, what? I've come to expect it now, but at first, I was flabbergasted. You knew this. You knew this, baby. You knew this was coming. I told you. Now I just expected it. I'll reiterate it if they want, but it hasn't mattered. <clears throat> Aren't you glad you're here? <laughs> I am. <laughs> okay. So, when it comes to God, God has established rules to his house. Amen? And if we step outside of those, and he's told us in his word, these are the consequences. In the Old Testament law, the blessings and the cursings. If you love me and keep my commandments and, and follow these things that I've instructed, here's all the good things that are going to overtake you. I like that word. They're going to overtake me. I can't get away from them. I'm going to be drowned under the avalanche of God's blessings. But if I disobey and go after my own ways and follow my own, my own ideas of right and wrong, these are the curses that are going to overtake me. The blessings and the cursings. Moses said, I put before you death and life. Therefore, choose life. Yeah. It's up to me. It's up to you. All I have to do is follow after God. And then I can expect those consequences. But with equal, with equal verity, if I follow after my own ways, I can also expect these consequences. It's just how it works. God is a God of order. And these consequences will always come. Not always right away. I remember when I was an early teenager, I was a Lutheran. I hadn't experienced full truth yet. And my parents, they talked like people in the world talk. And I felt like that was pretty grown up, so I wanted to talk like that. But I had enough 
of Scripture in me to know that that was wrong. At least for me. I guess I didn't think it was wrong for adults. I thought it was wrong for me. So, all by myself, I said a curse word. And nothing happened. No lightning. No, I was still alive, breathing. Nothing. So I'm like, wow, okay. So, anyway, <clears throat> the consequences don't always come right away. But the Lord assures us. Absolutely. He assures us that those consequences are coming. If not in this life, then in the next. Now, that's both good and bad, because when we see evil in the world, we see evil men being prosperous, uh, just anti-God, and, and they have all the money, and they have all the power, and all the influence, and we're like, what in the world? I can't afford that man's shoelaces. <clears throat> it'd, it'd take me six months' wages to pay for those things. But here he's living... Like, you don't even exist? <clears throat> that can get to us sometimes. But I promise you that man is paying consequences. And he will continue to pay consequences until either he gets right with God or he dies, and then God is definitely going to make it right. So things have to be done according to God's order, his design. Numbers 4.15 says, And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary, and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Uzzah was not a child of Kohath. Therefore, he was not allowed to touch the ark. Now, I don't know if, uh, I don't know what level of knowledge David had either. He certainly had a good relationship with God. I mean, no one's doubting that. Man after God's own heart. He had a good relationship with God. He loved God. God loved David. But I don't know what his level of knowledge concerning the law was. Because he put this thing on a new cart and had it hauled by oxen. That is outside of God's design. Those little rings on the side were supposed to have staves put in and carried by sons of Kohath. That was God's plan. Now, we can argue all day long about how legalistic God is and and, man, he just needs to loosen up a little bit. But I'm telling you, no, he doesn't. I don't need to loosen up with my kids when they tell me I need to loosen up. Almost always. <laughs> I'm human, so I guess there's a chance maybe I do need to loosen up. God doesn't. God's laws are perfect. He establishes perfect order every time. And when he gives us a command... The sons of Kohath need to carry this and no one else. And that's the way it needs to be done. 
And there are consequences when we step outside of that order. Poor Uzzah found out. He was probably entirely ignorant of it. But that doesn't, that doesn't disannul the natural order. Just because I'm ignorant of gravity doesn't mean I can just walk off a cliff and not expect a bad consequence. <clears throat> Gravity's still there, isn't it? Whether I'm aware of it or not. Exodus 25, 12 through 14 says, And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the side of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. Number seven and nine, but the sons of Kohath he gave none. Because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them that was, was that they should bear upon their shoulders. So they were the ones that were to bear the burden of the ark of the Lord. Not following God's commandments would be seen as not revering God's word. Having a rebellious spirit, thinking our ways are better than God's ways. Acting from a worldly rather than spiritual per- perspective or outright disobedience. In other words, uh, not following God's commandments, there's no good reason for it. The best, the best you can come up with is ignorance. I didn't know. Now there are those that applies to. Probably poor Uzzah was ignorant. And when I say ignorant, I'm not name calling. I'm just saying he didn't know. That's what ignorant means. Before I came to the Lord, I was ignorant of his ways. Obviously. I didn't get zapped by lightning, so it must be okay. How dumb is that? Pretty dumb. Now I am name-calling, because it's me. Samuel and Saul. 1 Samuel 15, we, we read... We read here the account of Saul disobeying God and not slaying the Amalekites. This is a fairly familiar story to most of us. Uh, God, through the prophet Samuel, told Saul to go up and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Wipe them out. Because of what they did to Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. In fact, God told him in Deuteronomy 25, you will not forget what he did. You will not forget what he did to you. You will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So the time was come to pay that debt. God said, go take care of it. So Saul gathered the people, fought the Amalekites, but he saved the best of the flocks and the herds and Agag the king and all that was good. Why? Well, because he knew better. He knew better. He knew what would really please God is if we save these for sacrifices. Now, this is where we get into trouble. At best, if I've studied Scripture for a thousand years, I still don't have a perfect understanding of Scripture. I can wake up the next morning and find something brand new. That's how the book is. It's a living book. 
So my knowledge will never be perfect. And my knowledge of God on this side of glory will never be perfect. At best, at best, I see through a glass darkly. I get glimpses and shades of who God is through Scripture, through creation, through time spent with Him in prayer. And I'm thankful for all of those. I want all of that I can get. But I don't see the whole picture. I can't see the whole picture. Not here. And so my understanding of God, it will always be imperfect. It will always be incomplete. So when I think in my human reasoning that I know better than him, he tells me to do something specifically. eh, Probably what he really meant was, no, he meant what he said. He meant this. When I tell my kids, pick up your room. I want nothing on the floor. Well, probably what he really meant was, just organize things. No, I meant nothing on the floor. That's what I meant. <laughs> I don't I don't know how we could confuse this. But we do it with God. We confuse what he tells us and we overthink it and we're we're analyzing it and and the reason we're doing that is cuz we don't want to do this. We don't want to do what God said. We want to justify doing something else, a little bit easier, a little bit more in line with what I want to do. Saul Saul was a weak man in a couple areas. He feared the people rather than God. And he just wasn't very obedient. So in any case, God told him to do A, Samuel decided to do B. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23 says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. As an aside... It's interesting to note the the levels of discipline that God meets out based on levels of responsibility they've been assigned. In the book of Exodus, actually most of the Pentateuch, we see the nation of Israel failing again and again and again and again. But they still get to go into the promised land. They're forgiven. Not the, the first generation, but the second one did. Moses fails one time, one time, no mercy. You will not enter the promised land because you failed to sanctify my name at the waters of Meribah. Why was that? Moses had a level of intimacy and understanding of God that the other people didn't have. He had a position of leadership that the other people didn't have. When Moses fails, it affects the entire nation of Israel. When the guy over here just trying to raise a family and, and milk the goats, when he fails, a few people are affected. And his level of knowledge isn't close to what Moses has. 
This guy doesn't talk with God face to face. God doesn't talk with him face to face. His face isn't glowing because he's been in the direct presence of God. So he's judged differently. Moses, he has all of that. He has all the authority that God gave him over the entire nation. Because of that, he's judged differently. So, sometimes it's okay to be the little guy, as it were. Sometimes it's all right. <clears throat> the, the more authority and responsibility you're given, and, and hopefully with that comes a, a corresponding level of knowledge and understanding, wisdom. <clears throat> hopefully that's the case. Because you have those things, because you have that knowledge that that's, others don't, that wisdom that others don't, God's going to hold you responsible for that. What are you doing with that? We need to study. We need to we need to uh, memorize scripture. We need to know it. We need to be apt to teach it. Apply it to our lives. But what we do with that? When God gives us these these nuggets of truth, when God gives us these revelations of truth, we read the Bible and something pops out. Wow, I never saw that before. We're responsible for that. We've got to do something with that. Not just sit on it and chew on it and enjoy it and then move on to the next. We have a greater responsibility than that. So, God was obviously displeased with Saul, somewhat so, in fact, that he cut him off from being king. At which point, he probably should have just stepped down, but he didn't. He hung on. God bless him. He hung on for 40 years. <clears throat> he was all laid up and inside, too. That boy had some serious problems at the end. He was far outside of the will of God. The Israelites versus the Philistines. Samuel was the last judge of Israel, so the book of 1 Samuel is, is basically a continuation of the book of Judges. Israel fought against the Philistines and lost. So they did what their fathers did. They brought the Ark of the Covenant. They did not consult God about going to war against the Philistines. God did not enter their thoughts. There's no mention of God. Only the ark. Let's bring the ark. It will save us. That's their words. It will save us. God won't save us. It will save us. They believed at this point that the ark was some mystical, magical device that would guarantee them victory. Their faith was in the ark, this box of, of wood and gold. It was now just another idol. When the ark came into the camp, they shouted with a great shout. Woo! They let that shout out. Because, well, not because God was with us. Because the ark was here. The ark is here, and it's going to save us. This new language that they used, no Israelite had ever uttered before. Not in the entire history of the Mosaic Covenant 
Did anyone ever talk like this about the ark? Till right now. The ark will save us. Everywhere else they'd bring the ark because they wanted God to be with us. They wanted God to, to deliver us and fight for us. But now it's degenerated into a box and it will save us. Their shout was very convincing. They had faith in the ark. They believed. They believed in that ark. We were going to win now. <clears throat> and their shout was convincing. They almost turned them back. What, what means this shout? These are the gods that defeated the Egyptians. These, these are the people that wiped everyone out. I don't want anything. Well, some fine fellow stood up and said, shut your mouth. Stop talking nonsense. Put your stuff on and let's fight. And they fought. And they called their bluff. All the shouting, all the faith in that box couldn't save them. <clears throat> and not only did they win, but the ark was captured. Their shout, their worship, their declaration of faith was utterly void of power. Why? It was placed in the wrong object. It was placed in the wrong thing. Today, our faith can be in all kinds of things, and we think it's in God. We think it's in God. We, we trust in God. I'm, I'm believing God for this. I'm believing God for that. I'm praying to God for this. But is our faith truly in God? And by that, are you willing to wait for it? Is your trust in God enough when he says nothing? Can you wait? Can you wait on God? Is your trust in him enough that when he says no, you're perfectly okay when it's something I really want? And there are legitimate things that we want. The Rolls Royce can probably wait. Okay, I've waited this long. God still hasn't said yes. I haven't asked either. <laughs> anyway. But there are some legitimate things that we pray for. We want people to be healed. We want people to be saved. We want, we want things to happen. We want promises to be answered. Do we trust him when he says, wait? Do we trust him when, we, when he says, not now, I got something else in, in the works? Or is our faith in something else? Is our faith in, in the, the promise? I found myself there more than I care to say. Sometimes I've had faith in the promise. I'd quote the promise, quote the promise, quote the promise. But my faith was not in God, who issued the promise, who backs it up with his power and his authority. The promise itself is just words. It could easily be for me. Braden, I say unto you, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. It doesn't matter how much he believes in that. If he wants me to, to cure cancer, sorry, bud. Uh, what else you got? I can't do that. I don't care how much faith he has in that. It's not going to happen. 
But if my object, if the, if the focus of my faith is in God, that's when the promise can happen. And if it doesn't happen in my time, or if it doesn't happen at all in my lifetime, Hebrews 11 talks about people that they endured all kinds of things, receiving not the promise. It came later, but not in their lifetime. Abraham believed God, but he didn't see any of it. He saw Isaac as the sands of the seashore, as the stars of heaven. Well, we got one. That's a start. But he believed it, although he never saw it. So the object of our faith, the object of our trust, when we worship, when we command in the Spirit, And we ought to be doing that. When we exercise authority in the Spirit, it's not because of us. We we hopefully understand that. And it's not because of a, a, a grouping of words that I find in a book in and of itself. Okay, please understand what I'm saying. The words in this book are powerful, but only because they are Jesus Christ in written form. The object of my faith is in God. Not in the promise in and of itself. I have faith in the promise because of who's backing it. If I promise these things, you're right to have no faith at all in it. I'll do my best, but at some point I'm going to fall short. And I can't expect that to happen unless I'm living in accordance with God's plan. I've got to do it His way. My life has to be structured according to His will for my life. I have to be operating in accordance with His plan, His structure. If I'm doing that, if I'm doing that, then my shout has all kinds of power. Because it's focused in the right area. In the book of Joshua, when the ark of God came, they shouted properly because it wasn't the ark that was coming. It was the presence of God that was coming. God was here now, not a box, but God. And that made all the difference. Our faith, our trust, our hope has to ultimately be in Jesus Christ. For everything, certainly our salvation, but for everything, for life. I can't keep this body together. I'll do what I can. I'll eat right. I'll exercise. I'll, I'll do my best to take care of it. But at some point, should the Lord tarry, all the care in the world, I'm still going to die. At 150 in one day. I'm going to die. And my kids, if they're still alive, they're going to plant. You better be alive. I'm not planting you. Planting me. I tell my kids that. I better not be planting them. 
You're planting me. That's the natural order of things. <clears throat> Should the Lord tarry, that's going to happen. All, all the diet and all the exercise, it's going to extend that, hopefully, but it's not going to extend it indefinitely. And I can pray for healing, and God can keep healing me, but at some point I'm going to fulfill the number of my days. And I'm going to be called home. And at some point, it's going to be, thank you, Jesus. I'm ready to go. <clears throat> so, I have to have everything ordered according to the plan and will of God. I have to be living in submissive obedience to Him. If we're not in obedience to God, I can expect the same results as Uzzah, as Saul, and as others. I don't think... Uh, I definitely don't think Uzzah meant anything. It was falling. It was going to hit the ground. I would have done the same thing. Because he thought highly of the ark. He didn't want to see it drop into the dust. But he acted improperly. His motive was right. He acted improperly. God called him on it. Saul, I don't know if he was intentionally malevolent. I think he was just weak. I think he just talked himself into something else. I don't think he was evil in doing it. But nevertheless, maybe he was. I'm just spitballing. That's my opinion. <clears throat> but best case scenario, he was still called on his actions. And we can have the best intentions. We can have the best motives. And do the wrong things. And God will still call us on it. And rightly so. Because he's in charge. And he makes the rules. Now, <clears throat> fortunately, we also have mercy, don't we? We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we do fail, if we do mess up, if we do something stupid like this, ignorantly or otherwise... We can humble ourselves. Don't justify yourself. Don't dig yourself deeper. Humble yourself before God. Repent of that. He will forgive you. And He will pick you up and you can, it's God's perfect will for, for you to get back up and keep moving forward. As a church, my, my wife found an article, I can't remember the specifics, but uh, it wasn't a UPC church. But someone was in the news because uh, he did something pretty bad. And uh, the church was apparently suffering some kind of blowback from it because this, this evil guy was a part of this congregation. And so what this loving, Christ-like congregation did was publicly cut them off. You're no longer a part of this congregation. How awful is that? In my opinion, the reason he did something like he did is because that congregation failed him in the first place. That could be a harsh judgment, but these things have been going on for a long time. My point is, 
the people of God ought not kill the wounded. We don't kill our wounded. If someone screws up, yeah, they screwed up, okay? We're not sugarcoating that, okay? What's wrong is wrong. Sin is sin. We don't sugarcoat that. But it's God's will for that person to recover, to get up and to continue to move forward. I can't remember how many times God forgave me for something stupid. Just completely stupid. And he forgave me. And he picked me up. And he kept me moving forward. I want to have that same attitude with others. People do stupid things. You know why? Because they're human beings. That's what we do. It's who we are. I tell people this, you know, uh, I'm going to do my level best to, to uh, build trust in this congregation. I want you guys to trust me. But here's what I can promise you. At some point, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to fail you at some point. Not because I mean to, not because I want to, but because I'm a human being. That's what human beings do. You'll, you'll do the same to me. So, there's our introduction. We're going to fail each other. We're going to let each other down. But we have mercy with each other and we're patient with each other because God has been merciful and patient with us so many times. Countless times he has been merciful to us. We ought also be merciful to one another. If someone messes up in this congregation, we're going to love them to death. We're going to pick them up. We're going to brush them off. We're going to fix them. Encourage them. Amen. Because that's what I want someone to, to do with me. That's what I've always wanted. If I mess up, I want mercy. We all want mercy when we mess up, don't we? But more often than not, when it's someone else, it's judgment. It's condemnation. When it's us, we need mercy. They, ought, they should have known better. No, it's, it's on both sides. So when we are in obedience to God, we can expect God to bless not only our worship, but everything in our lives. The Ark of the Covenant, or in our case, the presence of God, will be present in our lives just as it was for Israel in the wilderness and in Canaan. Amen. I'm starting to ramble, so it's time to shut it down. Let's all stand. <coughs> I don't like that when other people do it. <laughs> so, Okay. We're going to spend just a few minutes this morning.